You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I've been looking forward to this moment all week long. Uh, I do every week, but especially this week, because today I get to preach one of my favorite passages. In fact, as I thought about it this week, this passage right here might be my favorite passage in the whole Bible. I know that may sound a little surprising. I know there's other passages from places like Romans or Ephesians or 1 Peter that are probably more theologically profound or deeper. You could probably find passages from Isaiah or Jeremiah or Revelation that are maybe more eloquent or memorable. But here at the end of Acts 2, we get this beautiful snapshot of what everyday life looked like in the newborn church. Luke gives us this perfect summary of what these Christ followers did and experienced. This is the bio for the first church. It shows us clearly what their priorities were. And when I read this, it just seems to resonate with my soul. It, this is what a spirit-filled church looks like. Deep down, this is the kind of church that we all long to be a part of. This is the kind of church we all long to be. And there's a lot more I could say, but I want to let the text speak for itself. So let's go ahead and dive into this passage and see for ourselves what the Lord has for us in his word. We'll basically break this passage down into two parts, what the church did and what the church experienced. So what the church did and what they experienced. So first, what the church did. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So on the day of Pentecost, as we saw, the church is born. They receive the Holy Spirit. They explode in number from around 120 to over 3,000 right there in Jerusalem. And here in this verse, it describes their main priorities, four main priorities. This is what the church did. They devoted themselves to four things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of normal. That doesn't sound like anything groundbreaking or mind-blowing. Surely there has to be more to it to get the results that they're getting, There's no way it can be that simple. Do you know there's churches today that will spend thousands and thousands of dollars on consultants to come up with the perfect mission statement or the perfect vision statement or set of core values. They'll spend countless time and energy and resources crafting their brand and their message, but they should save their money because it's just not that complicated. It's actually quite plain and simple. It's devotion to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. And if you glance down at verse 47, it shows us the result. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the church had already exploded to over a thousand in one day, and then we find out that people are still being saved every single day. Surely there must have to be some secret, some clever church growth strategy that that the Bible doesn't mention. But no, Luke tells us exactly what they were focused on. And it's simple, but there's one word in verse 42 that makes all the difference. It's the word devoted. The King James Version says, continued steadfastly. 
There's a persistence here. There's a continual, ongoing, dogged commitment. They were devoted to these things. They, they're not things that they just did occasionally or when it was convenient. These things were as vital and as regular as breathing air. So as we here at Stapleton Baptist Church in the year 2021 look at the devotion of the first church in Jerusalem in around AD 33-34, we need to be asking ourselves, do we have that same devotion? Can we truly describe ourselves as being devoted? So let's look at these four priorities and see. First, it says they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. This was priority number one. The apostles' teaching was a priority because the apostles were the eyewitnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what they were teaching. They weren't just teaching whatever they thought would be helpful or whatever they thought was important. They were teaching what Jesus had taught them. And for us today, the New Testament is what we would think of as the apostles' teaching. It's God's word divinely given to us through the apostles. So notice it says, or it tells us in last week's passage that they had just received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells each and every believer, but that doesn't mean they no longer need teaching or guidance or learning. Instead, we find that this is still a learning church. Some people get carried away with this, uh, with being led by the Spirit, twisting that to mean they don't really need to worry about doctrine or being committed even to a church or grounded in knowledge. They can just go ever they are led by the Spirit and do whatever the Spirit leads them to do. And it really becomes more of a mystical experience. But the problem is that doesn't line up with Scripture at all. Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. And truth is grounded. Truth is narrow. The Holy Spirit points us back to God's Word and enables us to understand it and apply it. And we see the first church committed to learning and growing in their knowledge of the word and the teachings of Jesus because they're devoted to the truth. That must be our number one commitment as well. Complete devotion, unwavering fidelity to God's word. And it's not surprising that this first priority is also the priority that will earn us the greatest pushback from the world around us. The culture has no problem with you having fellowship or praying or breaking bread together, as, as long as you stick with love and acceptance, the world will tolerate you all day long. But the culture no longer has any tolerance for those that hold to the entire Bible as the infallible, inspired word of God. So are you devoted to God's word? I mean, truly devoted. If you never open your Bible, if Sunday morning is the only Bible you get during the week, then I wouldn't say you're devoted. You might, might like the idea of being devoted, but unless your devotion leads you to continually reading it, studying it, and applying it, then you're not devoted. And if you're not devoted, then eventually you'll be carried away by the current of the culture. Eventually the pressure will be too great, or the cost will be too high, and you will fold. Consider this, there's men and women in the world, in countries that are physically persecuting Christians. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who will meet secretly in the dead of night to learn God's word together. They do so at the risk of being caught and being thrown into prison or sent to a labor camp. 
We have brothers and sisters in Christ who put their own life in jeopardy by even owning a copy of the Bible. But they do it because they value God's word above all else. They know his word is life. Do we have that same devotion to his word? I pray that day never comes in our country, but I found myself thinking about it this week, trying to really imagine what would that be like. It's been easy to stand on God's word in our country, but what if it's not in the future? Will I still preach the word, the entire word, even if it means I could be fined for saying certain things, even if it meant I could be arrested, literally taken from my family? Would you still hold to it, even if it meant you could lose your job, if you could get kicked out of the public college you're in, if it meant you couldn't secure a loan? Would you still hold to it? I'm not sure if American Christians are prepared for that kind of future. I'm not sure if we're ready for something like that. If we can't bother to open our Bible when things are comfortable, can we really say we'd stick to it when things actually would cost us something? Can we really say we believe it's God's very revelation to man? Now, church, I want us to hold each other accountable to devoting everything we have to God's word, to letting it saturate our lives both personally and corporately. I can pledge to you that corporately, we will unashamedly preach and teach God's word from this pulpit, in our Sunday school classes, in our kids and student programs, and in every other aspect of corporate church life. And then may we as individuals devote ourselves to it personally. May we know it so well that it flows out from us in our conversations with one another. The first church was devoted to the teachings and growing in the knowledge of God. And we'll see in the coming chapters in Acts that they did so even to the point of death. So they're devoted to the teaching. That then leads to their devotion to fellowship. Now, we need to dig deeper into this word fellowship. Fellowship is a nice church term that we probably all recognize, but sadly, I think we've cheapened its meaning over time. I know I've been guilty of using the word fellowship, overusing it. Many churches, ours, including, uh, ours included, has a building called a fellowship hall. Fellowship is a word that many like to tag on to the end of just about any church function. If a group is getting together for any particular reason to do any particular thing, we'll call it a fellowship. But the truth is, fellowship is more than just people being together. It's certainly more than a building where you have potlucks. It's actually possible for Christians to come together and not experience fellowship. Sadly, there's probably many Christians that have never experienced true fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is the word koinonia. Some of you might even recognize that word. We name camps after it, ministries after it. And it literally means to have things in common or a partnership so what do Christians have in common? What makes up the koinonia? In his book, Habits of Grace, David Mathis, he writes about the first Christians and their fellowship, and he says this, the koinonia the first Christians shared wasn't anchored in a common love for pizza, pop, and a nice clean evening of fun among the fellow churchified. Its essence was in their common Christ, in their common life or death mission together in his summons to take the faith worldwide in the face of impending persecution. And he goes on to add, 
True fellowship is less like friends gathered to watch the Super Bowl and more like the players on the field in blood, sweat, and tears huddled in the backfield preparing for the next down. See, Christian fellowship isn't just socializing. The first Christians were deeply committed and devoted to it. It was essential to their faith journey. Their, faith, their fellowship was a deep soul-level commonality. They had a mutual allegiance to Christ and commitment to his mission. And it was this fellowship in the blood of Jesus that bound them together, not their favorite team or political party or worship style or any other preference. And this kind of fellowship is a God-given source of life, refreshment, encouragement, and even rebuke. And the first church has such a deep sense of fellowship and commonality with one another that verse 45 tells us they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So one of the effects of their devotion to fellowship is that it changed how they viewed their money and possessions. Now, if you're a true-blooded American, this may make you feel a little bit uncomfortable We so highly value our privacy, our individual rights, our property, our autonomy. But true fellowship breaks through this concept of privacy. Your faith in Christ is personal, but it's not private. Your faith is meant to be vitally connected to the body. We are all members of the same body to the fellowship of the saints. And these first Christians had such a deep sense of that that no one really considered what they owned to be only theirs. They so loved one another and were so committed to living out their faith as a body that when they saw needs among them, they would actually do something about it. And this isn't communism. This isn't socialism. This isn't a redistribution of wealth. It's not a government handout either. This is the body of Christ caring for its own members. Those who had more than they needed were joyfully able to meet the needs of those who were struggling. And so imagine a fellowship here where we love each other more than we love stuff, where we see a need and do something about it. But let's not stop there. There's even a deeper level of fellowship than letting go of materialism. Verse 46 also tells us, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They had a deep commitment to meeting together. Fellowship isn't just about hanging out, but it certainly does involve being together. If your only encounter with your brothers and sisters in Christ comes once a week on Sunday morning, then I don't know if you're experiencing fellowship. It says they were doing this day by day. Not just when they felt like it or when the weather was decent or when it was convenient. They couldn't wait to be together. And their gatherings happened on two levels. Sometimes they would meet in the temple together. There were actually places in the temple in that day that were large enough to hold gatherings of thousands. Gathering in the temple would obviously be for the purpose of listening to the apostles' teaching and worshiping God. The New Testament gives us evidence that from the very beginning, Christians would regularly gather every week, usually on Sunday, the Lord's Day, for corporate worship. But that wasn't all they did. They would also gather in smaller groups in individual homes for the breaking of bread. And that's the third thing they were devoted to. 
but it goes hand in hand with fellowship. They're devoted to the breaking of bread. And it likely has a dual meaning, that phrase, breaking of bread. It both means the general sharing of meals together, literally eating together, but it also refers to the Lord's Supper. It's likely that at either the beginning or end of the meal, they would have a special time set aside to observe the Lord's Supper. That's because their fellowship was centered around and anchored in Christ. They obediently and joyfully observed the Lord's Supper in remembrance of the sacrifice Jesus paid. And it's all done within the context of fellowship, of being together in homes. And when it comes to fellowship, I'll be up front with you. If you really want to experience true fellowship, then open up your home. Invite people in. Do real life together. Fellowship is much more than seeing someone 52 Sundays out of the year. And that's generous because these days the average church member comes two or three times a month. So maybe I should say fellowship is much more than seeing someone 25 or 35 times a year. I want to challenge us to be devoted to fellowship, both in the large gathering and in the small gatherings. Be here when the doors are open. Be here no matter when the doors are open, whether it's for worship or for Sunday school or for a life group or for any other part of church life, not because that's what Christians do, but because it's vital to your spiritual health. Not out of religious duty, but because you desire to be with the body of Christ. There is a life-giving part of the body that you can't get anywhere else. In fellowship, we rejoice together. We mourn together. We celebrate together. We bear one another's burdens together. There's this mutual vulnerability about it where you let your brothers and sisters in Christ see you for who you are, not just for who you want them to see you for who you are. In that, there's a freedom and joy that can only be found in the fellowship of the saints. But it takes a collective commitment to making it happen. So they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and finally, to the prayers. All those aspects of church life were bathed in prayer. Just because the Holy Spirit had come did not mean they stopped praying. In fact, now they could pray with even greater power and expectancy. So are you devoted to prayer, both privately and corporately? We often think of, of prayer as just a private thing, but it's not just private. When, when is the last time you prayed for someone in person? You didn't just say, yeah, I'll pray for you, but you actually prayed for them right there in person. During our 21 days of prayer and fasting, I would run into Brandon Simpson pretty often up here real early in the morning, and on several occasions, he prayed for me just right there in person. And I don't know if that was awkward for him or if that's something he usually does, but I'll tell you that what I do know is it ministered to my soul to actually hear the words he was praying on my behalf. And when we're devoted to fellowship, that should be completely normal for us to pray for one another and to ask for prayer. And none of this, I have an unspoken stuff. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible where someone's asking for an unspoken prayer request. True fellowship allows us to put aside our privacy, to be vulnerable, ask our brothers and sisters in Christ for specific prayer so that they can boldly petition our Heavenly Father. 
May we be devoted to all aspects of prayer. So that's what the church did. They're devoted to these things, which then leads to what the church experienced. As a result of this spirit-empowered action and devotion, they experienced three things. They experienced three things. The first is all. They experienced all. Verse 43 says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Most commentators agree that the phrase every soul refers to all people, not just the believers. The Holy Spirit was empowering the apostles to do miracles. And notice that just like we saw in the Gospel of John, Luke refers to them as signs. And we'll see through the book of Acts that the miracles that occur are usually attributed to the apostles. The miracles are signs pointing to the authority of the apostles, just as Jesus' miracles were signs pointing to his authority as a son of God. The miracles authenticated the apostles' God-given authority that helped reinforce their devotion to the teaching of the apostles. But not only that, but these public healings and miracles led to a general sense of awe among the population of Jerusalem. In the original Greek, that word for awe is the word phobos, which is where we get our word phobia. So this is a fear of God coming upon everyone in that community. You see, the church's earnest commitment to one another in the life of the church body had a profound effect even upon those outside of the church body. There was no mistaking that God was at work among these people. That kind of love and devotion and fellowship don't just happen naturally. It only comes through their common bond in the blood of Christ. People could tell this was supernatural. And so I have to ask myself, what kind of effect do we have on the community around us? Do we have any? When God is at work, people notice. Even if they don't understand it, even if they can't explain it, they at least notice there's something different going on. That then leads to the second thing the church experienced. Verse 47 says that they are having favor with all the people. So they experience favor with those outside the church. Again, that's referring to people outside the church. The community in Jerusalem appreciated this new Christian community. Now we find out soon in Acts that those people in power certainly didn't like it, just like they didn't like Jesus. But the general population looked favorably on the church. And how could they not? These people were ridiculously loving, peaceful, and generous. They were good for the community. The church is not supposed to just be an insulated group of people. It's not a place for people to hide away from the outside world. The church is more like a transportation hub where its members are continually coming in to refuel and retune to be sent back out to work into the fields because Christ told us that the fields are plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. What happens in the church body should have a profound effect on the community outside as well. The joy and love and generosity of God's people should radiate outward. Do you know about 4,000 churches close their doors every year, never to open again? And sadly, I bet most of those communities never even noticed those churches closed. They probably didn't notice because that church wasn't making any impact in the community. If it was, the church probably wouldn't have died. 
If Stapleton Baptist Church closed today, would our community notice? Would the community see it as a loss? When God's people are devoted to the word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, the community notices. And notice what attracts people to this first church. Was it their state-of-the-art building? Was it their rocking worship ministry? Was it their amazing Easter and Christmas productions? No. Then surely it must be their incredible children's ministry or maybe the coffee and donuts in the foyer. If you Google the phrase church growth, you can get nearly 300 million results. There are countless books, blog posts, even conferences on how to break the 200 barrier, how to grow to 500, how to get past 1,000 in attendance. Even this week, I received a magazine in the mail from churchgrowth.com. And particularly in the second half of the 20th century, churches in America became obsessed with growing numerically. They wanted to know how they could attract the most people and retain the most people. And it usually had something to do with having a bigger building, a bigger budget, flashier programs. It meant having something that the church down the road didn't have. And oftentimes their growth just came from consumeristic Christians hopping from church to church rather than growing from people actually being saved. And that's because they are relying on man-made strategies to bring people in. And let me say, being big isn't bad. The first church in Jerusalem was a megachurch by our standards. They did experience growth, and that is the third thing they experienced. They actually experienced incredible growth. But notice where the growth came from. I intentionally put growth under what the church experienced, not what they did, because they aren't the ones that created the growth. Look at the last sentence in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's a lot of things the church was doing and was supposed to do, but who does it say did the saving? The Lord did the saving. People were attracted by the devotion of the church, but were saved by the Spirit of God. We have what we're responsible for, and God has what He's responsible for. And you can't separate the two. Of course, God can bless whatever he wants to bless. God can do whatever he wants to do. But God is also a God of order, and he's revealed to us and made known to us how he generally operates in his word. God blesses a church that is devoted to him. And I don't see any reason in this passage to think that what's happening to this first church in Jerusalem is something unusual or exceptional. Quite the opposite. When I read this, it leads me to believe that When God's people are doing what they should be doing, being devoted to the word, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer, then we should expect to grow numerically because the Lord is going to save people. We can expect lives to be transformed. And so I hope you see why this passage resonates with my soul. I long for this same experience among us, to see people saved, to see our community affected, to feel the joy and peace of a devoted church. And the good news is that the ingredients are laid out clearly for us. There's really nothing radical about this first church. What's described here is not extraordinary or peculiar. What we have here is what normal, everyday life in the body of Christ should be. Let's pursue that life together, church, as we devote ourselves to God 
and to one another. Let's pray.